Hello and welcome to Himal Interviews. I'm Shubhanga Pandey, Chief Editor of Himal South Asian. In this episode of Himal Interviews, I'll be speaking to an expert on Myanmar's ethnic conflict and its borderlands on how the military coup of February the 1st will impact the country's unresolved ethnic conflicts and the ongoing negotiations between the state and the various rebel groups. Along with that, we will also look at the record of the international community's engagement with Myanmar since the resumption of democracy in 2012 and see what it might look like in the days ahead. David Brenner is a Himal contributor and the author of Rebel Politics, a political sociology of armed struggle in Myanmar's borderlands. David is also a lecturer at the School of Global Studies in the University of Sussex. Um, hello, David. Welcome to Himal Podcasts. Hi, Shubhanga. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I wanted to begin by asking about how Myanmar's various ethnic rebel groups uh, have reacted to the military takeover in the country um, and what happens to the ongoing negotiations, you know, now that the civilian government is no longer in power because, I mean, despite all the writing and analysis on the issue, there seems to be a lot of focus on um, what one might call the civil-military relations, but the ethnic conflict aspect of it seems to have been left out. Um, Could you describe that for us? Thanks, uh, Shubhanga. That's a really important question. Um, and you're absolutely right. We hear a lot about civil military relations on Sun Tzu Chi, the NLD, etc. So the National League for Democracy in Myanmar. But it's really important to not forget that we're talking about a country that has just seen um, a genocide um, on one of its ethnic minority communities, the Rohingya uh, people. Um, and it's also a country that has seen the longest ongoing civil war in the world. Um, it's been ongoing for about 75 years yeah, since the country's independence. We're speaking about a multitude of different ethnic armed organizations in the border areas of the country. Um, and you're absolutely right that this will have strong ramifications for them and for the peace process. Um, at the moment, I think there's a few things to be, you know, that we should point out briefly. Um, the first thing is that some movements have already made statements that they're very disconcerted, obviously, about what is happening. You know? So, for instance, the uh, RCSS, Shan movement, or the KNU, the oldest rebel movement uh, in uh, the country, um, the Karen movement uh, on the Thai border, they've released statements, the KIO as well, they're fearing yeah, military offensives, you know, to come. Um, at the same time, we should not forget that those movements are also quite fragmented. Um, and that they have, you know, um, military leaders, or some of them at least, that have been dealing with the military, the Burmese state military for a while, right? Um, and that there is some reshuffling and reorganization going on. Just very briefly, one story that I think, you know, is telling about this is that one of the previous uh, leaders from the KNU, from the Karen uh, uh, rebellion, um, has actually now switched sides and has gone to work for the military junta. Yeah? And he's always been one of the leaders that has actually also during the time before Aung San Suu Kyi, the time of Utain Sein, so uh, who, who, who held the kind of semi-military uh, uh, government's position of the president between 2011 and 2015, they've been dealing quite closely with each other. Yeah? So what I'm saying here that, you know, we have to watch like, you know, this fragmentation going on these different sides. Yeah? What that might mean for the ongoing negotiations yeah, is, of course, you know, a very, very important question as well. Um, what we've seen yeah, um, since 2011 um, is that first the Utain Sein government 
previous to on Sun Tzu Chi's administration, yeah, um, has reached out to a variety of these ethnic armed organizations in the country um, and has tried to build something that they termed the nationwide ceasefire agreement, which was never nationwide, you know, which excluded quite a lot of uh, uh, organizations. Um, and indeed, during that time, the civil war in places like the north of the country has escalated yeah, to unseen degrees, actually. Yeah. Um, and under Aung San Suu Kyi, we've seen a you know, much larger project, the so-called Panglong Peace Agreement project. Um, so that refers back to the Panglong Agreement that um, Aung San Suu Kyi's father, General Aung San, signed with uh, uh, ethnic minority leaders, yeah, after the independence of the country, which basically, you know, the importance here is, um, to negotiate federalism and power sharing, yeah, between the Bama ethnic majority and ethnic minorities in the country. So that peace process, yeah, um, has been more inclusive, maybe, yeah, um, uh, and indeed it's seen something like 1,800 delegates coming together in Napidor on like different, you know, occasions and so on. But also it hasn't really led anywhere. In, in fact, it's been stalling for a long time and there's a variety of reasons for that. You know? um, one thing that, you know, might contribute to some ongoing negotiations or the kind of renewal of negotiations is um, that ethnic armed organization leaders can now um, directly negotiate with the military again. Um, during the time of Aung San Suu Kyi, of course, they had to double negotiate with the government and with the military. The government could not control the military, right, um, in, in many ways. And still there needed to be this kind of double negotiation going on, etc. And um, when you actually look at some of those dynamics, at the actual negotiations between ethnic armed groups and the, the military, there's also another thing that, you know, we need to keep in mind um, as, you know, um, uh, many resentments as there are on both sides, right? Um, many of the actual leaders of these ethnic armed organizations and the military respect each other in some ways. Maybe in some ways more than there was respect, um, you know, between civilian uh, politicians and ethnic armed group leaders. And that does not necessarily need to entail negotiation outcomes that are good for um, local communities yeah, to be held in mind, but it actually makes negotiations yeah, more effective. Now, of course, one needs to see how to bring in critical voices from civil society and local communities in what otherwise can become rather exclusive negotiations that privilege investment over rights of people, for instance. That brings me to my next question, and which is, you know, really about, um, I mean, over the past decade, we've seen, you know, process of democratization, and there's been a lot of activity on that front and in international interest. Um, but how have the ethnic minority groups themselves seen this process of political reform, let's say, since 2011-12? That is a very good question again, right? But to, just to review, we are speaking about roughly a decade now yeah, of um, a, a transition, yeah, 2011 to now. Yeah? Um, and so in the first kind of part of the decade, there was this kind of uh, semi um, civilian semi-military administration. And then in 2015, we saw Aung San Suu Kyi coming to power yeah, in a landslide victory in those elections, yeah, and actually taking power in 2016. Then, yeah. um, for the ethnic minority communities, yeah, um, uh, this process of political reforms has, um, in some places, brought you know a lot of positive changes as well, of course. Yeah. Across the country, we've seen, of course, very tangible benefits for people's livelihoods, uh, 
healthcare, education opportunities, etc. The public sphere, of course, has opened up to an unseen degree, or at least you know a, a degree that hasn't been seen for you know, a long time. You know, um, uh, uh, and so there's been you know many you know civil society organizations outspoken and so on. You know, to really like remarkable decrees across the country. And at the same time, we need to be remembering that um, many of the ethnic minority communities have experienced an escalation of conflict and violence in the same period. Yeah? And here again, we need to differentiate a little bit yeah, between ethnic minority communities living, say, in urban spaces that are, for instance, controlled by the government yeah? um, and, you know, that still, you know, received more oppression yeah, than um, non-ethnic communities in urban spaces controlled by the government. Yeah? Um, but at the same time, right, we also need to be really wary about, you know, many of the communities who are living, you know, in spaces that are in mixed controlled areas, you know, that are in the actual conflict zones, you know. Um, so, for instance, we've seen like about 120, 140,000 internally displaced people in the north of the country, yeah, in Kachin and in Shan states during that time, yeah, during the escalation of war there, many of whom, you know, have been cut off from humanitarian access, yeah, because they're in uh, places that are not controlled by the government, yeah, and, and therefore the government has been like, you know, restricting access of international agencies to deliver humanitarian aid. There's been, you know, an, an escalation of conflict and, uh, you know, between the military and ethnic armed organization, but also a deepening of ethnic conflict on a communal level. Yeah? Um, most pronouncedly, of course, you know, um, in Rakhine state, yeah, but also elsewhere in the country. Yeah? And this is, of course, something, especially also Muslim communities who felt the brunt everywhere in the country, yeah? um, uh, because they go beyond the Rohingya community. Yeah? And then I think it's important to note um, what happened when Onsun Suchi came into power in 2015. Because many ethnic minorities placed a lot of hope in her ability to unite the country, right? I mean, indeed, her landslide victory in 2015 yeah, was not least secured by the support from ethnic minority voters. Yeah. But since she has yeah, taken power, the armed conflict has continued yeah, unabated, yeah, even intensified, yeah, certainly in the west of the country. Yeah. Um, and many um, erstwhile supporters of Onsen Suchi from the ethnic minority communities have felt let down, right? And rightfully so, of course. And not only because, I mean, they were aware that she cannot necessarily control the military's activities, right? But then they hoped for more, for instance, in terms of humanitarian access. Yeah? Since she came in power, humanitarian access closed completely to some places in the north. Yeah? Um, but also, of course, they were taken aback the most by her silence on the atrocities of the military and by often actually condoning the military's deeds, right? Most prominently when she traveled, of course, to The Hague to defend the military in front of the International Criminal, uh, in, in front of the International Court of Justice. Yeah? Um, but also, you know, um, uh, on a domestic level, yeah? when she, for instance, was praising the, uh, quote, valiant efforts of the Tatmadaw and security forces, yeah? uh, end quote, uh, for, you know, in their combat against, you know, um, uh, uh, ethnic armed organizations in the north, yeah? when she was endorsing the military on so many ways. Yeah? Um, you've also recently written about what you call the misconstrued international strategy towards Myanmar, um, their general shift in priority away from uh, supporting grassroots movements and towards state bureaucracies. 
um, could you unpack what you mean by that and um, you know how ethnic groups in the in the country see this change um i think i was first of all maybe i was privileged yeah to when i came to myanmar um for my research yeah um, in the first place it was about the time of transition 2011 2012 i was privileged because i came to myanmar through the border areas yeah uh through um uh, the places and you know activist groups and resistance movements of uh, ethnic minorities in the border areas yeah who were always very cautious about the transition act yeah and who were always like saying two things one is they were we're not sure whether we're seeing democratization here yeah? or maybe a more general reorganization of power yeah? the other thing is like also democratization is not you know necessarily the first thing that needs to you know occur in a place where that might simply just mean you know more oppression you know um by a majoritarian system right but minority rights power sharing you know resource sharing all of those things you know need to be addressed anyway the thing here is that a large part of the western donor community you know, that came to myanmar at the same time saw what is happening in myanmar primarily though through that lens of democratization you know? and i'm saying that this was not only analytically wrong in terms of what has been happening but also it's been like politically problematic actually, you know? because by operating on that assumption you know, um there was a large scale shift what happened in terms of what western donors did in terms of supporting different kinds of organizations there used to be um a you know a rather vibrant um scene on the border thailand and burma during very dark days of like military rule yeah in myanmar um where basically um you know you had western donors and so on supporting much more activist grassroots networks that were linked to you know a very diverse kind of things you know from you know nld to you know 1988 student generations you know to like different you know ethnic resistance movements and activists etc so there was actually a cosmopolitan place there you know interethnic alliances and so on um and you know it had its own problems i'm not going to you know do away with that i'm just you know for the sake of brevity yeah of course point that out um and 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 that kind of you know donor money has wholesale shifted yeah to inside myanmar you know, mm-hmm. um in this idea that myanmar is not in it what happened through that of course is twofold on the one hand you know that was great for actually you know supporting a very vibrant civil society in myanmar so i'm not saying all of that was wrong right i think there's been a lot of good things that on the other hand though you know um the donors basically crash landed at this time without much knowledge of um you know the place and trying to kind of you know use you know approaches that they've had in other places of the world you know and this is how you know development often works isn't it um you know then to come in and like do very similar things you know um here importantly then though um a lot of um funds were channeled directly into these militarized state bureaucracies because we need to be clear the 2008 constitution is very clear that we're not seeing democratization as such that the military who produced that constitution yeah is holding on to significant parts of power including ministries and bureaucracies in the country right and here I want to point out in particular the ministry of border affairs which is you know also known as natala in burma um and which is basically uh, a ministry that is you know tasked to develop 
the ethnic minorities, yeah, in quote, yeah, um, uh, in, in the border areas, yeah, and to kind of, you know, bring some form of like here in quotes again, of course, civilization, yeah. And it's always been this kind of, you know, sort of social approach to counterinsurgency in the country, as you can see, yeah. And where development has always been used as counterinsurgency you know, for a long time, you know, throughout the 1990s. Okay. And that was actually, you know, um, the first, uh, recipient of um, an 80 million dollar World Bank grant, yeah, um, uh, which you know I think on their website they said something about like grassroots led, you know, development and so on. But it was flowing directly into the Ministry of Border Affairs, yeah, which is basically the military in civilian clothes. Yeah. Similarly, we've seen other such. Uh, instances happen. Yeah? We've basically seen, you know, how, you know, um, Western donors have not understood yeah, um, whom they're dealing with in the first place um, uh, and have therefore then channeled money into places that have been then co-opted yeah, by the military that remain very strong, of course, yeah, um, for the building of a more authoritarian and ethnocratic place yeah, and for counterinsurgency purposes. And uh, how have the ethnic minority groups and their representatives reacted to this development? Um, so just very briefly, another one of those, you know, really um, telling projects yeah, has been funded by the multi-donor Myanmar Peace Support Initiative, yeah, which is the forerunner of what is now the Joint Peace Fund, um, and which basically was created to derive some quick peace dividends yeah, and buy into the peace process and so on amongst the conflict-affected communities. Yeah. And one of the many projects, yeah, which was in Kaya or Karani State, yeah, in um, kind of the east of the country, uh, was basically to resettle yeah, refugees yeah, in, a, in a place called uh, Shadong. And here uh, in Shadong Township, they were basically building um, villages to resettle these people that were built, of course, by the Ministry, you know, for border affairs in the end again, were used for counterinsurgency purposes, yeah, they were highly militarized, yeah, where people were surveilled, where the military grabbed land, etc. Yeah? Um, the Finnish Ministry for Foreign Affairs, which was funding the project, yeah, small project, pilot project, but nevertheless telling, um, <laughs> was um, kind of uh, uh, going, you know, to visit the place and, you know, basically was spelling out how everything was all right in a report, etc. And then um, there was a, a umbrella group of Kareni, so local ethnic minority yeah, civil society organization called the Kareni Civil Society Network. Yeah. And they voiced very strong concern about that project in a report yeah, where they were kind of, you know, spelling out all the militarization and land grabbing and so on that was going on there, you know, that there's military intelligence everywhere in those villages and so on. Yeah. And, um, well, at the time, the Finnish uh, Ministry for Foreign Affairs actually um, then responded, yeah, by saying, oh, but, you know, when we were there, you know, the military, you know, didn't have arms and they were really nice. Plus, you know, um, you know, they, they, they might be speaking about different villages altogether because they're using different names. Whereas, you know, it was clear that the um, Kaya uh, uh, Civil Society network was using the local names and local Kaya language and they were referring to those villages in Burmese, you know, from their kind of ministerial level. So you just see like, you know, um, obviously, you know, not just differences in perception, right, but also like how those, you know, very important voices from the civil society uh, side, from the local community-based side, have been sidelined, have not been listened to, have been ignored, yeah? and so obviously they've been frustrated, right? Well, moving on to the kind of international dimension uh, of the issue, um, 
I mean, there's been a lot of interest among, you know, international relations pundits and foreign affairs analysts on what the geopolitical fallout of this will be. Um, I mean, does the analysis of the situation change when we take into account what's happening in the borderlands? I mean, all the economic and political changes that have happened, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, um, is, is the assessment different that way? Um, and in very brief, yes, of course it does, right? Um, like, we can't understand the transition of Myanmar in first place without understanding those kind of uh, uh, dynamics between the border areas and the center you know? and those really border worlds of the country. We can't understand the ethnic conflict. We can't understand the kind of regional politics around it at all without that. You know? Maybe just to go back and maybe just briefly highlight, you know, one thing in terms of that. International relations, of course, thinks a lot about kind of, you know, different states you know, as if they were containers, isn't it? I mean, international relations, I know sorts of that that is of course you know the, the main approach to things yeah um whereas actually you know those border areas you know i would call them border worlds on the basis of what mandy sadan was writing about them you know um they, they, they've been connected yeah, in so many ways right um and not just you know now but you know throughout history um now, for instance the northeast of india yeah, has always been you know very intimately connected to the politics of the border areas of Myanmar, right? Um, in terms of, you know, those different, you know, projects, the conflicts coming up there, et cetera. So this is, of course, important. And these things, you know, have an effect uh, back to the international politics. And China understands this quite clearly, you know? And this is maybe, you know, just like, because I know, you know, some of your audience might be very interested in this idea of China and, you know, the US, et cetera. But this is, of course, something yeah, to keep in mind. China has been, you know, on the one hand, of course, having this kind of policy of non-intervention, non-interference and so on. And on the other hand, of course, in its like actual you know, neighborhood that has gone completely out of the window, right? And it had a very, you know, uh, long-standing, uh, complex relation with different armed groups in that area, right? Now, for instance, one thing is, you know, all the kind of, you know, uh, COVID uh, measures and control, right? Um, you know, some of the rebel groups on the Burmese side are, you know, um, uh, uh, cooperating, you know, quite closely with the China Center for Disease Control on the Chinese side, you know, because of course, you know, that's in China's own interest, right? And at the same time, you know, China has been playing a stick and carrots game with the Myanmar military and government, you know, for a long time in terms of sometimes supporting some of those armies more, sometimes, you know, letting loose of that support a little bit more, um, depending on how, you know, the Myanmar uh, foreign policy has been kind of um, arranged towards, you know, competing powers. You know? And that is something we will see going on. Yeah? And maybe just the very last word on this, of course, is that um, what is striking, of course, is um, that on the one hand, China will continue being a supporter of Myanmar, you know, including in the United Nations Security Council. Yeah? Um, and there's no doubt about that. It has only, you know, strong interests. So to come back to, you know, the borderland dynamics and so on in terms of, you know, uh, pipelines and what have you, right? In terms of the actual geoeconomics of the place, you know, and geopolitics of the place. But on the other hand, you know, the uh, Chinese uh, in Beijing won't be very happy or is not certainly very happy about the current Myanmar. Huh? They've uh, just established a rather good working relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi's administration that in many ways uh, has had like seen a better working relationship than with the generals before because Myanmar's generals have always been very wary about China. You know? um, and not least because they you know, have to deal with China's support to you know a variety of rebel movements, right? Direct and indirect support, right? And also you know generally because um, uh, uh, they have been very wary of 
like becoming too uh, dependent on China, for instance, right? So there's actually a little bit more of a rupture there at the moment that you know one might read somewhere. No? You know, I think as as we go ahead, we're likely to hear a lot of debates on on possible sanctions on the state, you know, including economic sanctions. Um, I mean, how do you think that would affect chances for democracy, but also, you know, how would it affect the peace process? Um, I mean, given what we know about, you know, the history of sanctions and its, its impact on the state. Um, and I think uh, just to add something to that, um, what can those outside Myanmar and who are interested in, you know, democracy in Myanmar and progressive transformation of Myanmar, what, you know, what can they do? Yeah. Um, so again, very good questions. And I, you know, only be able to scrap the surface, of course. But first of all, on the question about sanctions, you know, um, uh, I don't believe sanctions have necessarily worked um, uh, throughout the 1980s. No. I, I think Lee Jones has done quite some insightful uh, research on that. So I would also refer you, you know, to Lee Jones at Queen Mary's University of London um, uh, on, you know, tracing very detailedly how they have not worked. Just one, one thing maybe, you know, um, to illustrate some of that. It's not just that they haven't worked so much, but that they might have actually deepened uh, some of the conflict yeah, and the military power yeah, in terms of their economic power as well. Um, the political economy of Myanmar is a very particular one that is very, you know, deeply intertwined with the country's conflict. Yeah. Um, and that is based on resource economies. It's based on narcotics. You know, it's based on, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, now large uh, uh, scale investment and so on. And one thing that we've seen throughout the sanctions period is that um, the uh, Myanmar government has basically channeled money from these conflict economies, from these illegal, illicit, informal economies, yeah, into the formal fold. Um, uh, and you know, not only been able to um, finance itself. But also finance infrastructure, construction, etc. Throughout that, right? And on top of that, of course, you know you have enough regional powers and neighbors and so on that are not necessarily, you know, going along with those sanctions, right? What I was saying is like not only that, you know, blanket sanctions, anyways, won't work, right? Um, uh, uh, in terms of efficacy, yeah, but they might even make some of those things uh, worse in terms of strengthening some of the political economy power hold of the military over the country. Right? Um, and there's, you know, some some really important, yeah, maybe paradoxical effects that need to be watched there. You know? um, I think, though, you know, everyone who is interested in supporting Myanmar, etc. Um, uh, well, two things. Yeah, um, if we are private people, etc. One thing we could really do is, um, uh, you know, especially if we are interested in following the events there is uh, to support some of the very critical and important media outlets uh, that we've seen in Myanmar. Yeah? So Frontier Myanmar, for instance, Irrawaddy, Burma News International, um, you know, they've been around for a while and they have all been, you know, instrumental in driving progressive change in Myanmar. And they're all struggling at the moment, of course. They're struggling in terms of, you know, where to go, officers, you know, people are being arrested, journalists are being arrested, activists are being arrested. You know, it's not just the NLD cadres and Onsen Suji who's been arrested, but a lot of these people as well. Um, so they're in a, you know, very pragmatic and straightforward sense. Everyone can donate to, you know, those outlets. Again, for instance, Frontier Myanmar, Irrawaddy, Burma News International, right? Um, the other thing, um, you know, and a more general, I think, uh, for, you know, international, you know, engagement with Myanmar and so on, 
want to come back to, you know, my earlier point about, you know, what happened with 2011 and the transition. And then all of a sudden, a lot of, you know, longstanding, you know, activists, you know, networks and so on have been left alone by, you know, donors where then the money was shifting to, you know, more like, you know, other places, etc. Um, I think we really have to see, you know, how we can not just, you know, um, re-engage um, with many of the critical voices that have been left alone, but also, um, you know, how we can bring about a fruitful and progressive convergence of the different oppositions that are there in Myanmar, right? Because the opposition isn't only on Sun Suu Kyi and the NLD. I mean, as a matter of fact, you know, and it's not surprising maybe to hear after what's been happening in Rakhine and so on, you know, that is not the most radical progressive force in the country at all, right? Um, uh, like, but, you know, the 88 generation is still there, right? Like different, you know, so many different civil society organizations, community-based organizations, right? And I, I think really what needs to happen there is a cosmopolitan like kind of, you know, uh, you know, inter-ethnic alliance, you know, that we've used to see really much more in the 1990s and how that can be supported here. Right. I think that is maybe, you know, um, uh, for, from a more, you know, uh, international engagement point of perspective. Yeah. Um, the really important thing. Yeah. And where, you know, I, 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 I very much believe that we'll have to listen to unconvenient truths, unconvenient truths, first of all, about, you know, how engagement, you know, the engagement that we've seen from, you know, uh, the West in particular over the last 10 years, what the pitfalls were, you know, and how, you know, we can do better and we can learn from that. Right. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. And thank you, David, so much for joining us. Thanks also to you, Shubanga. Always happy to contribute to Himal. For more Himal podcasts, go to himalmag.com slash podcasts.